We are studying Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian Christians, and today we begin with chapter 4. We welcome you to this Radio Bible Course study. Chapter 4 is the beginning of a new section. Typically, Paul begins his letters by writing about doctrine. Toward the latter part of his epistles, he usually focuses on practical truth, on how the Christian ought to live. First, he wants the Christian to understand his position and what Christ has done for him. Then in the latter chapters, he talks about how the Christian ought to live. The first 12 verses of chapter 4 are important for a special reason. These teachings come prior to Paul's teachings about the believer's great hope, the appearing of Jesus Christ in the clouds, in the air, where all believers will meet him. That's going to be a day that most people cannot accept. They think it's too incredible that Christians would be raised from this earth and taken to be with the Lord, and that at the same time, dead Christians will also be raised. But we'll get to that by and by. That begins with verse 13. The first two verses of this chapter are general considerations. Then Paul will deal with chastity and holiness of the body. Then brotherly love. And finally, a theme that he continually discusses, the need for Christians to do work. And by that, Paul means working for a living, secular work. Now, with verse 1, we begin our reading, Finally, brethren, we beseech and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, Paul begins with the word, finally, but by that word is not meant that he is coming to a close of his letter. Instead, that word is used as a transition from the main part of the letter. What Paul means here when he writes it is, as for the rest of the things that I have to say, and so he then begins beseeching them. That is an older word that means to ask. He beseeches them and exhorts them in the Lord Jesus. Now, this is the basis for his appeal. Christ is the authority on which he bases his plea to these Thessalonians. He reminds them that he taught them right living. How did he do that? What did it include? Well, it did not include the Ten Commandments. We can be sure of that. It did not include the Sermon on the Mount or the Lord's Prayer, the things that we usually associate with basic teachings to young Christians. And the Thessalonians were young Christians. Paul had been there only three or four weeks and was writing shortly after leaving. Now, if Paul didn't teach these things, what did he teach? Well, Paul was a preacher of the new covenant, not the law of Moses. Paul taught all about grace and faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ. His message was good news. It told what God had already done and what was available to the Christian. Once he believed, 
Then he had everything that he needed in Christ Jesus and was fully accepted by God. It is unfortunate, of course, that the Christian faith is often thought of as a religion that prohibits certain things. But the faith which the apostles preached was a message of all that God had done and how he had satisfied his justice by sending his own son and doing what was necessary to bring forgiveness to man. So when they went out to preach the gospel, they announced what God had already done and how he loved men and sacrificed his own son on their behalf so God could receive them forever. The apostles told men that God was not willing that any should perish, but that all come to him by a change of mind. That's what the word repent means. They thought that God wanted sacrifices, works, laws kept, but the announcement of the gospel was that, no, that's not the way. There was a faith way. It's the way that Abraham came to God through faith. And God was gracious. He was giving salvation, not rewarding them for all their good deeds. Now, Paul said that he had taught them how they ought to walk or to live and to please God. Now, that's not an unreasonable request that we please God. It is normal to please the one we love, and there is no one more worthy of our love than our God. Now, verse 1 is a plea to continue to do what Paul taught them, not a correction. This suggests growth, not an experience. When one believes, he begins a new life which develops as he feeds on the Word of God spiritually. The Bible often refers to feeding, growing, and becoming mature in the faith. All that happens as we feed on the Word of God. It's the only spiritual food for the spiritual person. Generally speaking, we can say that a man's growth will be measured according to how much he feeds on the Word of God. Now let me say this about pleasing God. In the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. That tells me something now positively, that if I want to please God, I should have faith. When I do believe God then he is pleased forever with me. Because that's what Abraham did and became a friend of God. But in addition to pleasing God through faith, the Christian is called upon to please God by his behavior. And, of course, that's what Paul is talking about. In verse 2, he talks about the instructions that he had given. He said, For you know what instructions we gave you, through the Lord Jesus. Literally, this word instructions is charges, a word used to express authority. And he cites his authority. It's Jesus the Christ. Paul claimed to speak for Christ. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, 
If you think you are a prophet or a teacher, acknowledge this, that the words that I speak unto you are the commandments of the Lord. So Paul had authority. He was speaking for Christ, just like Christ, when he was on the earth, was speaking for the Father and claimed that he thought up nothing new of his own. He said, everything the Father has spoken to me, I had said to you. And by the way, that's good instruction for the Bible teacher. And uh, I function from that basis. I really have nothing to say. But God's Word says something. So my job, then, is to make clear what God has said, to bring it up to date, to define words, to call attention to the context, so that people can understand what God means for them to understand. Now, in the next six verses of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul discusses the need for sexual purity. Listen to what he writes. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from unchastity, that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like heathen who do not know God, that no man transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we solemnly forewarned you. For God has not called us for uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to us. Because of the morality of our generation, the teachings of Paul here may come as a surprise. And... Because sexual impurity was tolerated 1,900 years ago among the pagans, although not by the Jews, there was a need to write about this subject. There is no hint here in the context that these believers were guilty of anything special. Leon Morris, the New Testament commentator, writes that continence was regarded as an unreasonable demand on a man back in the first century. In society at large, it was taken for granted that men would naturally seek the satisfaction of their sexual desires outside of the marriage bond. The pressure to conform to the easy standards accepted throughout society must have been strong on the early church. That helps us to understand what life was like back there in the first century. You see, the Greeks did not think that there was very much wrong with immorality. There were also religious cults back in that day which promoted sacred prostitution for their worshippers. But Christianity came on the scene and introduced sexual purity into pagan societies as an entirely new and incredible concept. If the world today has any trace of purity... It is because the gospel brought it to the world. Now that may have eroded and been tarnished and rusted away, but that's where it came from. Paul says this pure life 
is the will of God. That's how he begins this section in verse 3. He said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is used 106 times in the Old Testament and 31 times in the New Testament. What does it mean? It means set apart. Set apart for what? For a person, for the one who bought us. Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, purchased us with his own blood, not with money, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so sanctification refers to a matter of position or our relationship to God. The sanctified person has been set apart from others in his relationship with God. It happens when a person believes. God sets him apart for himself, and he's different in God's sight thereafter. Now, we'll continue this tomorrow. I hope you'll join me. Here's an important question. How should the Bible be interpreted? There are common sense rules to follow, and these are explained in our six-tape album entitled Principles of Interpretation. In addition, these teaching tapes Apply the rules to many of the Bible's most difficult and controversial passages, such as Hebrews 6 and James chapter 2. This cassette tape course on Bible interpretation is a practical version of what students are taught in theological seminaries. Don't miss this opportunity to learn how to interpret the Word of God. Our free teaching tapes brochure describes this course. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.